Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Daf Shvui, Weekly Daf. Give me 40 minutes or so and I'll give you a Daf or so. We're now past Perm, so we're in the home stretch. We're in that strange position before Pesach, but we're in the strange position more globally where there's a vaccine and I'm feeling it because I just got an appointment for my first shot. But at the same time, people are dying at unprecedented rates. We have 500,000 people dead. And so we can see the end, but we're still in the middle of it, and really in the middle of it. It's like the Jews in the plague of darkness. They were told to get their lamb and to prepare for the Passover offering, but they were still in the middle of it. They couldn't see anything beyond Egypt. And they had to go through this whole ritual and they had to dress up as if they were leaving so that that ritual might bring the leaving closer. And yet they were still in the middle of it. And that's where we are. It's kind of right in the middle of it. We're, in, we're still in the middle of it. People are dying. Oh, people are dying. 500,000 people dead. Over 500,000 people dead. California around 50,000 dead. It's not good. And yet we can see the end. We're going towards Pesach. We're going towards going towards liberation. <sighs> Deep breath. <sighs> Breathing all that in and holding it all. Okay, we are on 58A, Nunchet Aleph. In the layout that was of the Gemara that was first published in Vilna by the widow and the brothers Ram Lo these 150 years ago. And this week's sugya is, I love this week's sugya. It's uh, this week's daf. It's a long agadic sugya in which we meet Rav Bana. Rav Bana was a, uh, we don't know that much about him. He's both in the Yerushalmi as Rav Banaya and in the Bavli as Rav Bana. And he uh, is a, uh, as we'll see, he goes around and he finds caves, burial caves. And he's also known to as a riddle, as a as a, a, a riddle answerer, as an answerer of riddles. He's a, a Shlomo-like figure in that he can figure out riddles. Okay, so here we go. So we are the third, fourth line down, second to the last word in the line, Reb, Rabbana. Rabbana hava kametzayin ma'arta. What Rabbana would go around and he would mark out graves. Now, this is coming off of Rabbanah's state, uh, statement on the last on the last daf, talking about what Rabbanah there was talking about something. There, Rabbanah was talking about the fact that you're not allowed to look at the women. That when partners own a chater together, as we did last time, partners own a chater together, they're in a courtyard together. One can force the other to allow them to do to allow the women to do larger in the chater, so that nobody should be able to have to look at the women down on the river. And then there's also in that same sugya. There's a statement about the fact that if somebody walks through a field and doesn't know whether or not the field, they have gone over the place of impurity in the field. So that's kind of those two things, the Rabbana statement and the impurity in the field, are kind of a loose connection to what's going to go on here. Here, Rabbana, Hamakamatsayan, Ma'at Rabbana, would mark out burial graves, burial caves. Um, and this is something that happened because it's a problem. There were no necessarily uh, set graveyards in in every place. And so therefore, people would bury somebody in the field. 
people would forget where the graveyard, where the grave was, and other people would just, you know, walk along the field and not know, and they would become impure. And this is also something that that people did. So we also have a, a story in Bav Metzia, 85b, Reish Lakish have Metzayin Ma'arta Derabanan. Reish Lakish would go, was going around and was defining the burial caves of the sages. This is a thing apparently the rabbis did, and actually later on this continues in the Zohar, and then apparently the Ari, when uh, Rabbi Zagluria, the great Kabbalist, Svat Kabbalist of the 16th century, when he got to Tzvat, that's what he did. He went out, he found the graves of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, he found the grave you know, in Miron, and found other graves, whatever you want to understand what that verb found meant. Okay. So Rabbanah became in Ma'arta. Again, Rabbanah was going around and marking graves. Kimata Ma'arta de Avraham. So when he got to the grave of Abraham, not just any grave, but the grave of Abraham, our ancestor. Eliezer, Avraham Kame Bava. So he found, of course, Eliezer, Abraham's servant, Abraham's loyal servant, so loyal that even after death. And after Eliezer's death, he was still standing outside this grave. Um, and he was standing by the uh, uh, entranceway to the grave. So this must have been in Hebron, right? Marat Machpelah. That's where Marat Machpelah was, traditionally. Amrle my Kavit Avram. So Rabbana said to Eliezer, "What's Avram doing?" Meaning. I uh, have to go inside and uh, mark, find out, you know, mark off where the grave is. So I go inside and see exactly where the body is buried. And then I go on top and then I mark it out so people can know where the impure part is. Amalai, so Eliezer answered him and said, Gane bekanfa de Sarah. He's lying in Sarah's arms. And Sarah is looking at his head. And I think it's a beautifully romantic statement, an erotic statement, like, they're just lying there in that repose. Amarle, so Rabbanah said, Zil Amale Banakaya Baba. So Rabbanah said to, to Eliezer, Go in and tell him that Bana is standing here at the entranceway. Amarle, Leo. So Eliezer said, You can just go in. Because he knew, Eliezer knew, this is kind of, this is the Stam. Uh, in the uh, Greek chorus voice, or putting in that he knew that in this, in that world, meaning the in this world, meaning the the world to come, the world beyond the world, there is no uh, uh, yetzer, or according to some manuscripts, yetzer hara. There's no desire. There's no lust in that world. Bahayamaleka. There's no lust in that world. So therefore, there's no. Uh, it's no immodesty. There is no immodesty. Ayel he went in. Ayen Vinafak. He looked, or according to some of the some versions, is Tsien. He marked it up and he left. Kimata. So then he went on. He continued on his mission. Kimata Lamarta Adam Harishon. When he went to the cave of Adam, Yetzabat Kol Amra. So a divine voice, which is a feminine divine voice, Bat Kol. The the it's literally in modern Hebrew it's used as an echo sometimes or in literary Hebrew, but it is the divine voice. But Bat, the daughter of a voice, literally the Amra, and it's treated as a feminine and feminine verbs. And this divine voice or the voice of God said, 
Nistakalta bidmut dukni. You looked at the image of my face, from the image of my visage. Bidyukni atzma al tistakel. But in my visage itself, do not look. Now, what does this mean? That when he went to the cave of Avram, and we'll see soon that our forefathers, Avram and Yaakov, they had the beauty of Adam. And Adam, it says in the first chapter of Breshit, the first chapter of Genesis, was created in B'Tselem Elohim, in the image of God. So that image of God itself was Adam. And then apparently after Adam, all the other people were created in a little bit of a of a, a, a removed image of God, even though the Mishnah in Sanhedrin says that everybody was created in the image of God, and et cetera and so forth, and all the, the implications of that. But here it seems that there is a remove. So this divine voice, or God says, you looked at the image of my visage, do not look at my visage itself. In other words, don't look at Adam, because that's like looking at God. So Rabbanah said, let's say you name what, what could I do? I have to mark the grave. So he answered, the, or she answered the divine image, so you just look outside, and it's exactly the same thing. And the Stam interjects. But what about the opinion who says that the Marata Machpelah, literally the doubled cave, was two levels, one on top of the other. That's not a problem either, because the upper cave is just like the lower cave, and then you just you know measure it that way. So Rabbanah says, you know what, I actually, Rabbanah said afterwards, I looked at and I saw his ankles, Adam Rishon's ankles, and they were like two globes of the sun. Okay, so the one thing that's in, that, that's interesting to note here, the Batkol is feminine, and therefore, and the Batkol is the one who's saying, Dmut Dukni, right, my visage. And so there seems to be an identification of God with the feminine. So we're talking about a feminine God saying, don't look at my visage. In a bit, we'll say something about notions of beauty or visual eroticism. But right now, uh, let's take a look. Let's just go through that story of Reish Lakish and uh, marking graves, which is in Bava Metziah because that is interesting in its own right. Reish Lakish was going about marking graves of sages. When he got to the cave of Rabbi Chia, he couldn't find it. It like disappeared from him. He was going to mark it, and then he couldn't find it. So he became faint. Amar, he said, Master of the universe, Did I not teach Torah like him? So this divine voice came and said to him, You studied Torah like him. You even were able to, the falpel is, is to create sharp insights into Torah. But you did not teach Torah like him. So therefore you are not, you do not merit to find his grave. So that's another grave finder. There are a couple of other grave finders in various different places. And the story of Shumbar Yochai in the cave after they get out, what they want to do in order as a as kind of a gift to the town is that they also note where the where the gravesites are so that people can walk. It's easier. 
It's one of this stuff is, is seen as a public service to note and and mark off grave sites. Okay, the Suya continues. So every person compared to Sarah, literally in front of Sarah, but every person compared to Sarah is like a monkey before a person. Compared to a person. So in terms of beauty. Sarah b'fnei Chava, k'kof b'fnei Adam. And Sarah compared to Chava, Eve, is like a monkey compared to a person. Chava b'fnei Adam, k'kof b'fnei Adam. And Chava compared to a person, compared to Adam, is like a monkey compared to a person. Adam b'fnei Shechina, k'kof b'fnei Adam. And Adam, compared to the divine presence, to the Shechina, to the image of God, is like a monkey before a person. It's like God's central characteristic in this telling here is overwhelming beauty. Beauty beyond all beauty. Right? You get up there, there's, you know, once you get through Sarah, Chava, Adam, God, it's all just beauty. And it's all feminine beauty. Okay. Perhaps including Adam. Remember that when the first creation in Genesis 1... God creates Adam as male and female. So there's no distinction. And the God created Adam in God's image. Zachar unekeva barautam. God created them male and female. But that one creation. And then it's only in Genesis 2 that there's a distinction between the man and the woman. Okay. The Sugi continues. Shufrei derav kahana main shufrei derav. The beauty of Rav Kahana was like the beauty of Rav. Shufrei de Rav named Shufrei de Rabbi Abau. The beauty of Rav was like the beauty of Rabbi Abau. Shufrei de Rabbi Abau named Shufrei de Yaakov Avinu. The beauty of Rabbi Abau was like the beauty of our father Jacob. Shufrei de Yaakov Avinu named Shufrei de Adam Rishon. And the beauty of Yaakov, our father, was like the beauty of Adam Rishon, of the first Adam. And most of the manuscripts Add Shufrei da Adam Rishamein Shufrei the Shechina. The beauty of Adam, of the first Adam, was like the beauty of the divine presence of the Shechina. So there seems to be an obsession here with beauty. An obsession, a centrality to beauty of the sages, and that that beauty of the sages goes back to the beauty of God. It's interesting, uh, Rachel Nice writes about the sense of sight in rabbinic culture. There is a strong notion of the visual eroticism with the rabbis. The sage's visible form as an icon of Torah and of the divine authenticated, extended, and promoted the entire project of Torah learning sponsored by the rabbinic collectivity. To see the sage was to learn. To see the sage was to recollect and remember. And ultimately, to see the sage was to become like him. So this is this visual eroticism, right? It's seeing the beauty. And kind of the, the uh, most extreme example of this was Rabbi Yochanan, who would sit outside the mikvah so that women would see him after they had ritually bathed and they were on their way home to their husbands to have sex. They would see him and he would imprint on them so that their children would be as beautiful as him. And this 
section here about the beauty of Rav Kahana was like the beauty of Rabbi Abel going all the way back to the first Adam is actually quoted in that story about Rabbi Yochanan and ultimately the story about Rabbi Yochanan and the Shlakish, which has a tragic ending, but we're not going to go into that. But I do want to read the beginning of that, go into read the beginning of that story in Bav Metzia 84a. I'm Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan said, Ana ishtari mishapirei I am left over. I am a remnant of the beautiful people of Jerusalem. Haiman Dubai, and then the Stam, the narrator, takes over, saying, Haiman Dubai, Merzei Shufrei Rabbi Yochanan. If somebody wants to understand or see the beauty of Rabbi Yochanan, Naite Kasa de Kaspa, you should take a silver cup, Mi Salki, which just came from the silversmith, came out of the fire, Minimalia Partsida de Romana Sumka, and he should put red flower petals around the top, or fill it up with red flower petals. And then put a wreath of roses around the, the opening, lefume around the opening, and then place it exactly in the middle between sun and shade. That shining, that beauty, that's a bit like the, the beauty of Rabbi Yochanan. So now if you think about that, it's there's a lot there because which we're not gonna to spend too much time, but a lot there to unpack between living things that are just about to wilt and silver, which is hard metal, and sun and shade, which in an instant will move and not be there anymore. So it's like this instant of beauty. In that instant, that's what Rabbi Yochanan is. That beauty which in the world you can only get for an instant, that's Rabbi Yochanan. So Islam says, really? Eni? Then goes this whole genealogy that the beauty of Rabbi Kahana was like the beauty of Rabbi Abao, and the beauty of Rabbi Abao was like the beauty of Yaakov Avinu, our father Jacob, and the beauty of Yaakov was like the beauty of first Adam. And then the, the Stam says, Rabbi Yochanan is not part of this list at all, so why are we so going on and on about Rabbi Yochanan? And the, yeah, Shani Rabbi Yochanan, the Hadrat Panim Lohavile. Rabbi Yochanan is not counted there because Rabbi Yochanan did not have literally a, 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 the glory of the face or the beauty of the face, meaning Rabbi Yochanan didn't have a beard. And that actually plays a part later on in the story because the beard was considered very, very masculine and then he's mistaken for a woman by Rish Lakish. But we're not going to get into that. Just noting here again this, this visual eroticism, this importance of the visual, the materiality of the visual, not just seeing a sage sitting and learning, but seeing the beauty of the sage as reflected of the beauty of God. This week's podcast is brought to you by the OMG It's Pesach Alarm. Did you ever get that feeling that Pesach was just around the corner and you hadn't bought enough, you hadn't cleaned enough, you hadn't prepared enough? Then you woke up and realized that Pesach was just around the corner and you hadn't bought enough, you hadn't cleaned enough, and you hadn't prepared enough. Congratulations. You have the OMG It's Pesach Alarm. It rings once a year, too early, and doesn't stop till you start the Seder. And best of all, it's free. Therapy not included, intergenerational trauma, a definite possibility. Okay, we go on. We're still in burial, but we're not so much in beauty. Hahu Amgosha Dahavi Chatet Shachve. So this Zoroastrian priest, an Amgosha, translated as a Magian, was uh, digging up uh, dead people. So there is a contradiction or a, a problem a, a between the customs of the Zoroastrians and the customs of Jews in terms of 
the uh, uh, in terms of, of death and burial. Because Zoroastrians practice the exposure of the corpse shortly after death in an open space to be consumed by dogs and birds. Whereas Jews and also Christians generally interred their dead in the earth. So there, there's a contradiction in their practices, which could lead to problems. Kimata, so that's why this Sasanian priest, because there's a problem of making the earth impure, and the Sasanian priest doesn't want that, so he's going around trying to dig, going around, dig it up, as opposed to marking the graves, he's digging up the bodies. Kimata ma'arta tovi barmatna, so he got to the grave of this Babylonian sage, tovi barmatna, and tovi barmatna, who is dead, grabbed the uh, priest by the beard. Ata abaye, Abaye came along. Now, there are some versions that said Aviv, his father, but that doesn't really make sense in the context here. So we're going to go with Abaye, especially since two lines later it says Abaye. So Abaye came along, Amarlai, and said to Tubi Barmatna, Bumatuta mine shavke, Bumatuta minach shavke, please let him go. Lishana achrite, hadar ata tafse So the next year, this uh, Sasanian priest came back, the Zoroastrian priest came back again and tried to dig him up again. And once again, he grabbed on his beard. Atabaya, Abaya came and again asked him not to, to, to asked him to let go. La Shavke. So, but he wouldn't let go. Ata'ayte maspra v'gazye ledikne until he brought a scissors and he cut his beard. So, it's an interesting performance of this conflict between between Zoroastrian custom and Jewish custom. But what's interesting is that uh, the Rashbam, reading this, understands that th- that Abaye was friendly with this priest, and that's why he came to his assistance. However, Jeffrey Herman, who's a, a contemporary scholar, says this magus, meaning the Amgosha, and hence what he represents is no itinerant and zealous monk seeking provocation. He bears the mark of authority. Abaye's role is illustrative. Not only is he portrayed as powerless to prevent this magus, but his intercession is for is all for the purpose of extricating this magus from his predicament. The requirement for maintaining public relations with the magi perhaps overrides any contemplation of forthright protest at their practice. Whereas in this story, the deceased rabbi from the underworld has the upper hand, there's more than a hint that in the upper world we are dealing with a recurrent phenomenon for which the Magi may well have had a free hand. So Herman sees this as showing the the position of power that the Magi, that is the Zoroastrian priests, had, as opposed to the Rashbam, who sees this as a, as a story of friendly relationship between Abaye, a Babylonian Amora, and the uh, Zoroastrian priest. Okay. Hahuda Amarlu, somebody said, Chavita de Afra lechad brai, one cistern of or one you know jar of dirt to one son. Chavita de Garmin lechad brai, a jar of bones to one son. Chavita de Udra lechad brai, a jar of cotton balls to one son. Lo aviyadi my Carmelo, and and then he died. And they had no idea what he said. Right? They had no idea what that meant. So they came to Rabbi Banai, and they asked him, what did he mean? So he said to them, Do you have land? They said, yeah. Do you have animals? In, yeah. 
Do you have blankets? In. Yeah. So if so, that's what he said to you. He said that one person, one son should get should get the land, one son should get the animals, and one son should get all the blankets. There you go. So Rabbana, and this starts the beginning of Rabbana as being an explainer of riddles, like Joseph. Hahu gavra dishama lebdebitu dekaamra lebarta amai latzniat beisura. This is an interesting story. There was this guy who heard his wife saying to her daughter, "Why are you not modest in your sexual activity? Basically, you're going, you're sleeping around, and everybody knows it. Why don't you be a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, quiet about it?" Hach itita asara bni itla. This woman, meaning me. I have ten children, ten sons. And only one of them is from your father. So then, when the father, right, that woman's husband, died, So he heard this whole conversation back and forth, So he's, and then he knew that only one of the sons was his. So he said, All my estate will go to the one son. Lo yadi lahaminayu, but they didn't know which one it was. Atulakami to Rabbi Banai, so they came to Rabbi Banai, who knows how to solve riddles, break codes, figure out mysteries. Amarlahu, he said to them, Zilu chavotu kivra davuchan ad kai magali lecho lahaminayu shavka. Go and beat on the grave of your father until he wakes up, stands up, and reveals to you. To which one of you he left the land? Azlu Kulus. They all ran off to beat on the grave. Hahu Debre, Hava La Azil. So there was one son, the one of his sons, which was his son. Hahu Debre Hava, the one of his sons, which was his sons, did not go. He didn't run off to beat up on his father's grave, which is a pretty humiliating thing. I mean, you're embarrassing the dead. You're beating on his grave, really? Amalu Kulunichsi Dai. So Rabbi Banah said, you know what? All the estate belongs to this one. Kind of like a reverse Shlomo, reverse Solomon, when the women, two women come with the, one had a dead son, one had a live son, and then Solomon says, divide the son, and one woman says, yes! And the other woman says, no, no, you take it, I don't want it. And Shlomo says, well, you're the one who didn't want to divide the son, is actually the real mother. Um, he learned it. So that kind of trick is kind of the opposite trick. The one son who refused to go and humiliate the father by insult the father's grave by beating on it is, is the true son. Or maybe it's the same. Okay. Azlu Akhlu Kurtsa Beimaka. So they all went and they they uh, uh, they tattled, they told the king about what was going on here. Amre Ika Gavra Chad Biudai the Kamafik Mamona Me Anche Bala Sahadi Ubala Midi. There is a guy in Judah, in Judea, who is taking money from people without witnesses or nothing, without any cause. The king doesn't want that. The king is whatever the ruler of the province doesn't want that because that, you know, is not good for good order. That's you, Khafshu. So they took him and they imprisoned him. Azla de Bitu, his wife came, Amrlo, and said to them, Avda Khad Habali, I had a slave. Pascularesha, they cut off his head. 
they skinned him. And they ate his flesh. And they filled him with water. And they gave to their friends to drink. And they didn't give me money or rent. And they had no idea what she was talking about. Somebody took my slave and flayed him and used him to drink out of Amre. So they said, Let's bring that wise Jew and we'll ask him. He'll tell us. So they brought, they called Rabbi Bana. Amar Lahu. He said to them, Zarnoka Amar Lahu. Amar Lahu. She's talking about a flask which is made out of the skin of an animal. The Avda is an animal. Amri. So they said, Since he is so uh, smart, he should sit by the gate of the city and he should judge. So Rabbi Bana was sitting down and he looked around and he saw that it said on the gates of the city, Any judge who is called to a judgment is not considered a judge, meaning anybody, any judge who is sued by somebody else is not is no longer considered a judge because the judge himself has to participate in this litigation. So he said to this, He said, that doesn't make any sense. If I'm sitting here as a judge, anybody could come along and, and, and sue me and so that I have to come to court with him. And then I'm no longer, then I'm invalid to judge his case. Ella, rather, it should say, called Dayan Demit Kare Ledin, Umafkin me name Amona Bedin Lavshmedan. If you want to say it, it should be any judge who is called to judgment and they take, they extract money from him legally. In other words, the, the, there is a legal remedy for whatever the case is, and he has to pay money, so then he is not a judge, because he did something illegal. And you want your judges to not have done anything illegal. Kitfu hachi. So Rabbi Bana says, write that. Baram sabi di However, the elders of, Jude, of Judea already said, any judge who is called to judgment who needs to appear in a litigation, and they extract from him money in that litigation, is not a judge. So he saw also that it was written, literally, the head of all death, I am blood. In other words, the chief cause of death is blood. The chief cause of all life or living is uh, wine. Elameata says if that's true, denafil may igra meat. If somebody falls off a roof and dies, denafil me diklo meat. If somebody falls off a tree, palm tree and dies, damakatle. He wasn't killed by falling off the tree or falling off the 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 roof. He was killed by he was killed by blood. Vitu is that could that be vitu min meimat and. On the other side, if somebody's about to die, just give him wine and he'll live.
because it says that wine is the, the, the best thing for life. It's the only thing for life. But this is how you should change this graffiti or this inscription. The thing that causes people, that causes illness more than anything else is blood. Right? Is some blood illness. And the the best cure is wine. It's not that anytime you, you drink wine, you live, but rather it's the best cure. Kitful hachi. So write that. Baram, however, sabid yuda amri barosh komarinana, dam barosh klasvin anachemer. The elders of Judea had already written that, had already said that. The chief cause of illness is blood complications, and the chief cause of healing is wine. And in a place where there is no wine before him, uh, you have to uh, get uh, these simanim, these signs. As it is written on the, the gate of Cappadocia, Anpak Anbag Antal. Now these are three Anpak and Anbag are apparently, according to Saklov, variations of the same word. Anbag is an earlier word. Anpak is a later word. And you can see how one becomes the other in terms of the pronunciation. And they mean cup. Antal is like a larger uh, vessel for mixture. Ve'ezahu Antal. And what is an Antal? Zerevi'it shel Torah. This is the revi'it uh, of a log, a quarter of a log. Uh, that is the Torah measurement for many kinds of, of liquid uh, obligations. Okay, so here we go. So now what do we say? So what is this? What is this as a whole? We're up to the Mishnah. We're going to do the Mishnah, and then we're going to finish for the day. But what do we have to say about this whole thing? We start with graves, with marking graves, with the ancestors, with beauty, with wisdom, and we finish off with, you know, wisdom as saving. And then we finish off with this uh, little bit of, a, uh, you know, Rabbi Bana in the wisdom coming through and becoming the judge and judging. And then a little bit at the end with the uh, blood and wine as being cures and dangers. And so what, what do we have to say? What is there to say about this? So it's not clear to me, but I think it could be going back to the visual eroticism in that there is a very strong connection with both the beauty, with beauty and Torah, or beauty and wisdom. And then this is connected with the ground, the land, mamish, the land, mamish, you know, the land itself, the materiality of land, being buried in the land, measuring out the burial, and the materiality of bodies, me- seeing the beauty, measuring the body in the land. And then that is no different than right, understanding these riddles, which are about land also. And that land is connected specifically in Ma'arot, in caves and in fields, to the, the discussions that we've been having all this time about land itself. And so there is a very deep, it seems, connection, material connection, in these things which also transcend this world. And there is a materiality, there's a sugya in the second chapter of Brachot, about the graveyard as also a kind of a portal to the next world, but in a very physical way. So there is a materiality to death and to dead people, 
which transcends life. And there's a way in which you can move from one place to the other. And that's what it seems that this sugya is about. But these are just thoughts. If you have more thoughts, please share them. My Gmail address is, or the Gmail address of the, the podcast is the widow and the brothers at gmail.com, of course. Okay, let's just do the Mishnah, which will just be a teaser for next week. Hamarzev ein lo chazaka makomo chazaka. So Marzev is a, is a smaller pipe which does not claim a chazaka, an ownership over itself, but the place where the pipe, where the gutter pipe exists is a claim of ownership. So in other words, if I have a, a house and my house is next to your courtyard and I have a gutter at the end of my house, a gutter pipe. So that gutter pipe does not have chazaka if it extends over to your courtyard. But the place of that gutter pipe, there is a chazaka and the, there is a, a claim of ownership. And the Gemara, these are the questions that the Gemara will, will, will try to answer. What exactly that means? Mazchela, which is larger, has a claim of ownership. So that's more permanent so it has a claim of ownership, and that seems to be the defining characteristic in this Mishnah. Things that are larger have a claim of, of owning. Sulama Mitzri ain't lo chazaka, Lutzri yesh lo chazaka. So if a, a, an Egyptian ladder, which was placed in your courtyard leading up to my roof, doesn't have, you know, it doesn't have a claim of ownership. Why? Because you figure it's impermanent. You're going to move it any day. But a Tyrian from Tyre ladder which is really large and is never going to be not going to be moved so that if you don't say get it out of here so that can be a claim of chazaka against your an adversarial claim chalon so a an egyptian window which is a small window does not have a claim of chazaka but a tyrian window does have a claim of chazaka so the windows here is that is whether or not if i put a window in my wall facing your courtyard you can build opposite that window or i have a claim to say that no you can't because here it's a chazaka that i get the sunlight from it or something to that effect what is an egyptian window any window that the head of a person cannot enter into it, cannot be placed into it. So in other words, it's small. Again, we're talking small and big. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, im yesh malbein, Rabbi Yehuda says, if it has a frame, in other words, four bricks around it, even though a person's head cannot fit into it, it is still has a claim, can be used for a claim of ownership or a claim of ownership can be made about it. Okay, and then the Gemara is going to ask all the relevant questions, which we will continue next week in the Beit Midrash in the closet. Thank you so much for coming. It was such a pleasure sharing this time and this daf with you. I am Aryeh Cohen. You can follow me on Twitter at Irmiklat, I-R-M-I-K-L-A-T. And I want to, of course, thank my wonderful producer, Ellie Unger-Sargon, who just dropped another podcast in the Four Cubit series on anti-racism and anti-blackness. Check it out with Ellie and Jeff Helmreich. Uh, I want to thank, of course, my wonderful Chavruta Charlotte van Robert. I want to thank the communications department of 
Daf Shrui Industries. Shachar Cohen Hodas, who came up with the, created the wonderful logo for Daf Shrui. Please be in touch with witticisms, criticisms, or comments at my email address, the widow and the brothers at gmail.com, and that will be on the podcast page. If you like this podcast, please give us a, 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 a rating, a good rating on the Apple Podcast page. And even more important, bring along a friend next week or tell a friend about us and tell him, tell him or her to listen so that the sound of learning Torah will ring out across the land. Be well, be safe.